0: Thank you so much for staying with us. Uh, Dr. Kopano Matlamabaso is now on the line with us. She's from Grow Great, Executive Director there. And we are continuing with our series on a health uh, series that we've been st- we've been uh, on about. And this is for specifically for stunting. It's an org- organization that has come up with programs to alleviate stunting in the country. And she joins us now on the line. Dr. Matla. thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon. Thanks, Tamela. Great to be back. So we want to just hone in on the maternity support grant, which is one Mm -hmm. of your initiatives that you think will help alleviate stunting. Let us just take us through what the maternity support grant exactly is.
1: Mm. I mean, as South Africans will be aware, we have a child support grant that has been shown through numbers of studies to have made a significant difference in the health and the well-being of children. So it's it's really been effective in that regard, and it's something that we should be proud of as a country Um, and the aspirations in our national development plan do want to support um, you know maternity pregnancy because we know that that's really where we're going to get the biggest return on investment as we've spoken in previous weeks 80% of brain development happens in the first years of life and unfortunately due to a whole lot of um, barriers administrative barriers and other barriers actually in fact only about 60% of children actually get the child support grant in the first year of life when they need it the most. So there's two reasons why a number of people, or a number of groups or bodies, think a maternity support grant would be a good move for South Africa, including ourselves, is that one, it would help with the early uptake of the child support grant. The current, as I said, most children, or at least a significant proportion of children, are only starting to get it from the second year of life. So we've Mm -hmm. missed this golden window, where really the grant, which is a powerful intervention, would have its biggest effect. And then pregnancy is the a time of huge financial vulnerability for a, a huge number of African women. So research has shown that about a quarter of women go hungry in pregnancy. Now you can imagine that you've got this rapidly developing child that you're carrying who's got huge demands, nutrition demands. And if if a quarter of women are going hungry, that's starting that's that child off on a back foot even before they've had a chance to participate in life. And also, from an employment point of view, for many women in the country, pregnancy is a time of um, job vulnerability, so it's an employment vulnerability. You know, you might not want to tell your employer because you're in the kind of job that you can be easily replaced. If you're a farm worker, maybe a domestic worker, um, paid maternity leave is not legislated in Africa. Maternity leave is, but not paid maternity leave. The costs um, increase, your health care costs, you've got to go to your antenatal visits, but uh, that's a day of lost weight. So there's a number of reasons why we need to be better supporting pregnant women in this country, both for their own health and well-being, but also because it's a good investment in the future of our country. Mm. We are starting the next generation on a back foot. We are, we are incurring a bill for ourselves when we, have to, when we have high levels of unemployment, when we have high levels of inequality, when we have poor education outcomes later on in life.
0: So you you were saying that, you know, usually the maternity or the grant support grant would kick in in year two. And, and what I'm asking is that, isn't there a way we can even do with that? Because that in itself is a problem. So once we've dealt with this maternity one, the other grant that only kicks in in year two, I mean, is there a way that we can manage that administration? Yeah. So just to clarify, it's available, you know, from as the baby is born
1: and there's a birth certificate. Because so not that it kicks in to, in year two, but when you look at research, when you interview women and when surveys uh. ask women when does a child actually get a grant mm. only about 60% of, of eligible children because of course there's a whole group of children in our country who are not eligible because their parents earn more than you know the, the, the amount that you need to qualify for a grant but we're not talking about eligible children so children actually need the grant only about 60% are getting it in the first year of life and there's a number of reasons that you know others have looked at you know things like dad surnames you know delays in around um, the Mother herself not having an i d which makes it difficult for the Child to be registered and you know often these things kind of um come together are magnified the more vulnerable you are mm. so you know the people who need it the most are the ones who tend to be struggling with documentation um, so, you know, you need your ID. If you don't have an ID, you need a letter from the school that you finished, but maybe you're living in Cape Town, but you went to school in rural Eastern Cape. Often people live around borders. So, you know, we work in uh, Um in Pumalanga and in a community where people, there's kind of a fluidity between mm. Swaziland and that area. And so, you know, that those home affair officials tend to be a lot more bureaucratic in terms of. You know, are you truly South African? So there's a number of barriers that happen in an administrative level that make it difficult for people to take up the grants. But we also can't afford to fix these things one step at a time because they are lives that are are being shortchanged and and undermined by not addressing these things simultaneously. So, yes, we need to improve the administrative side of the grants. We've, and some are calling for the actual level, the amount of money that you get to be increased to the food poverty line because that's another challenge, that the amount is not actually where that to say says is sufficient mm. to cover a basic basket of food. But also we know that pregnancy is a critical period for the development of the brain. And if we want to be a knowledge economy if we want to truly participate in the fourth industrial revolution, we have to invest in the brains of children. We have to invest... It's both a health reason, but also a justice issue that we are denying of, of no fault of their own. We're denying, of course, of children of fully reaching their full potential for, not, for nothing that they've done themselves. You know, not because they've made they've done anything wrong. They just start
0: life on the back foot. And that's unjust. Uh, Dr. Mabasa, I mean, let's, let's just quickly talk about how much that fee is. And I, I just want to ask you another point after that. How much? What? Sorry? that that fee is that that you know obviously people are saying is not quite enough for the basket of food. Yeah, so I mean if
1: I'm not mistaken, I think the grant is now sitting at just above, um, in the just below five uh, five hundred rand, and the food poverty line is well above that. I think it's sort of six hundred yeah. and something. Yeah. So there's a, there's a value that Stats SA will calculate based on yeah. what would be a nutritious diet, and mind you, this is just the food right? This doesn't cover your basic. You know, a child doesn't just. Eat you know, they need to bath, there's basic stuff that you need to, you know, you, the child needs to be clothed. So there's other poverty lines, there's the upper bound poverty line that really looks at both food, but also basic necessities. But so even if we look at the minimum, like we're just talking food, mm-hmm. the grant as it stands today doesn't even meet that level. So a lot of groups are also saying, okay, let's it can't be an arbitrary figure. You know, we can't just say, okay, we're going to give you this amount of money because that's what we can afford. Because then we're not really addressing the purpose of the grant, which is to improve the nutrition of children. What we do want to do is to make sure that it serves its purpose. And that's why making it the free poverty line is useful, but also extending it into pregnancy which would make a huge
0: difference one of the things that we need to discuss very quickly because there will be still people who are listening who say yes you know you guys are encouraging young people to fall pregnant now Mm. for a long time that was the argument of many people but stats have now shown that that's not true children are not falling pregnant because they're waiting to earn this grant it's now we know the stats are showing that's not quite true
1: yeah absolutely and I mean I think it's important I mean you know people might speak about a particular case that they know very well but I think it's important for us to separate what is anecdotal what is one person that Mm. you might know you cousin or your neighbor and this person really good for. But then there's on the population level when you look at studies. And in fact, I think often teenagers are often sort of accused by this, mm. but you actually see that teenagers are some of the populations that don't take up the grant very early. You know, so it's clearly not the motivation, mm. right? Because if that was the case, then you would see that teenagers are kind of the first ones to get the grant. In mm. fact, the research shows otherwise. But definitely, and this is not just in South Africa. I mean, there's studies that have looked at you know, over thirty developing countries and they also find that women women don't just I mean and I think it's also a little bit undermining. Women know the cost of raising a child mm-hmm. and four hundred odd rand is not motivation enough for you to fall pregnant. I mean I think in itself there's a little bit of a sense of um I mean, yeah, it's, I guess, it's laughable you
0: know, yeah, that demand. Yeah and, and
1: exactly and I mean I think the grants is an important initiative but the true cost of raising children is, is much higher than that. And certainly there isn't evidence to show that women fall pregnant in order to get the grant. The grant itself is a powerful intervention and it's something that we should be proud of as a country. And I think if we think about sort of from a justice point of view that we are trying to undo almost 350 years of perverse social engineering. We've got families that are trapped in intergenerational poverty of no fault of their own because we had crazy policies through colonialism and apartheid that that have left huge groups of the population constantly trying to pay catch-up, constantly running a race with one leg right? And that's not fair, and so we do need these kind of policies that, it's it's not welfare, it's not charity, it's justice. We need policies that are bringing us all to the same starting point, because we'll never break inequality if we don't give these children a leg up.
0: So let's just look at the impact, because I think for some people, it it's such a far-fetched idea. You know, yes, mm. stunting, whatever, whatever, not mm. within my scope, whatever. But mm. but the results of stunting, I mean, they last for a very long time. Many of those children hardly ever finish high school. Absolutely. I mean, study
1: after study, you know, there's been studies in Jamaica and Guatemala. We've got the birth 20 cohort here in Soweto. And studies show that from as early as ECD, I mean, we've got a partner organization that's already been, that looks at reading, and they've recently done the an evaluation, and they found from as early as nursery school, ECD, and, you know, foundation phase, reading speeds are related to height. So you can literally take the children who are not stunted and, and are stunted and compare their reading speeds, and there are statistically significant differences. Meaning that the difference is not due to chance, it's a true difference. So then we talk about education for children who get to classrooms, who get to schools and are starting on a back foot, as I said. They are already short-changed. Standard children are less likely to be employed. They're more likely to live in poverty as adults. And I think the other thing that if we're looking at this purely from an economic point of view, they're also at greater risk of chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease and hypertension. Now, that's expensive for taxpayers. Mm. If you've got a cohort of young people who are going to be on chronic medication, filling hospitals, can't be productive in the workforce because they're sick often, they take a lot of leave, that is expensive. So whichever way you want to cut it, you want to look at this from a moral point of view, you want to look at this from a public health point of view, you want to look at it from an economic point of view, addressing stunting should be a national priority because it's better for all of us it's better for the future of everybody's children and it's the right thing to do as a country
0: we're going to expand a bit more on this next week but I want us to start kicking off you know your idea of community health workers who mm. who assist in your drive just tell us about right. how they how they they add the, to the impact
1: yeah so I mean community health care workers are a workforce that exists in the health system we've you know some studies estimate we've got as many as seventy thousand of them. Um, and they've been around with us for a long time. I mean, certainly in the pre ARV era, community healthcare workers played a critical role in supporting families when they weren't ARVs or when at least ARVs weren't easily accessible, you know. Mm. And so we have these incredible men and women in communities mm. who are known, who understand the circumstances, because often with these types of interventions, you have people parachuting in and trying to save a community. But these are people who live and work in a community and get the challenges. Um, and countries that have reduced stunting significantly have have employed or worked with or mobilized their community health care workers they 've really leveraged these people who live and work in communities to address maternal and child health and The reason, the reason being is that children in the first thousand days so from pregnancy to age two are not, an institution. they're not they're very in institutions they not they 're very seldom being precious. you know some of them are, but for the most part people start to take their kids from to crash from abroad three years old Mm. they only go to clinics either when they're sick or when they are getting vaccinations and that's only 20 days of the first thousand days you know the vaccination schedule Mm. so if you want to support mothers and children and you want to protect the next generation you want to focus on well-being not just disease right because we want to prevent disease and you want to support mothers and you want to help mothers with mental health challenges you have to be in the home you have to be in the community and that's why an investment in community health care workers it's critical. Unfortunately, in South Africa, we haven't really gotten that right. Maternal and child health is only recently now starting to become a key part of the scope of community health workers. And so, our campaign is working alongside provincial governments, um, you know, to look at how do we really centre maternal and child health into the scope of community health workers because they're the ones that are going to really help us shift the needle on funding.
0: So we, we, you know, just touched on the fact that ultimately, you know, um, we have this gap because these children are not in creche or school or anything. Mm, so mm. reaching these children is quite difficult. Mm. Um, government has an intervention for children who are hungry, for those who are at school, where they are given lunches and so on. Yeah. yeah. And, and I suppose how I see it is to augment whatever grant is given to the families, right? No absolutely I and mean, I
1: think the food speed, the school feeding program is an Im- important intervention you know yes. you can't learn if you're hungry yes. but in terms of in terms of the window of opportunity cuz here we're talking about yes. we are resource constrained like you wanna invest the money you have, right? You want to invest it in where you're gonna get the highest returns on investment. And if
0: we are only feeding in school, yes even this is this thing. is what I was gonna to ask to say mm. in as much as we're looking at that grant and that money that we were talking about not being adequate for, for school going children there is something that augments that. So we've got some sort of a nutrition plan program that augments that. Whereas for those children, there is nothing there. Is there discussions around how we can maybe add to that, to that whether food parcels may be delivered to these because if we know that these mothers are going to antenatal uh, classes yeah. for instance would yeah. there be a way in that which they would be given maybe parcels or uh, i don't know vouchers or something yeah i mean there are community organizations you know there's groups like rising in Tongue and others who do this kind of work
1: for relief but you know there's it's not government. You know, we it's want not to government. give it from a dignity yeah. point of view right yeah. because some you know i don't want somebody to determine for me what my family should eat. Mm. So why do we expect that a poor family must you know be delivered foods that are not not necessarily meet their taste or their appetite? Giving people cash has dignity. Mm. They get to decide. I mean, I think that, you know cash and care, which is what a lot of countries are doing, is both the cash and also education because mm-hmm. we can't assume that we all always know the right thing but there's a dignity in giving people the right to decide but the information that empowers them to make the right decisions and so we're saying we've got these mom and baby groups that are running around the country there's health promoters and clinics who advise there's radio dramas now there's a side-by-side campaign that focuses on advising primary caregivers across all ACBC radio stations in and, and all of our official languages But how do people implement it without the money, right? And this is the missing piece, that I'm pregnant and you're telling me, drink your iron and folate tablets, make sure you don't drink them on an empty stomach. And I get home and I've got a child who I'm going to give whatever little food I have to the child. I'm not going to eat that night, I might just drink some water so that, you know, I can fall asleep. But I've got a baby I'm also carrying
0: Mm.
1: that is already now, the clock is ticking and their life is already being started at a disadvantage. Mm. And that's incredibly unjust.
0: Okay, so we—I I imagine that community health workers themselves are quite beneficial in giving you also specific data that that wouldn't mm-hmm. ordinarily come through through other channels.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, community health workers are incredible because the data that we have nationally is, you know, for good reason because it's expensive to do these surveys. Gives mm-hmm. us a sense of what's happening at the national picture, but it's it, and a little bit at provincial. But not in community. Mm. So you know, there's differences. You know, in the Cape Islands, we know that there's high levels of fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, you know, alcohol has a long and complex and political history in terms of how people were paid on farms, and that legacy has continued. So there's very high levels of risk in pregnancy. But in Limpopo and you know Limpopo and, and parts of Limpopo, water and sanitation remain an issue. You know, people don't have decent sanitation in their homes. Water is not always of good quality. So, so community health care workers themselves can illuminate that a little bit better for us because they understand their community and the data that they generate through caring for their, their patients helps us to, to align resources to the specific problem in that community because problems do vary. And I think this, this allows us to tailor interventions to what is actually needed in a particular community. Hmm.
0: Do you know... I wonder though, Kupano, how how an ordinary person listening to this can add mm. value because there are people who feel a little bit helpless you know so um, some of us are listening and we're thinking yeah mm. we can only do so much with what we know yes. um, and, and we're not government uh, but we do yes. want to support I mean what other ways can people just listening at home support Grow Great yeah,
1: yeah you know I mean I think this is such an important question and I'm, and I'm glad you always are constantly coming back to what are the tangibles because it can become kind of a little bit of an academic thing mm. so I mean a s- simple steps is please come and sign our petition. We have a petition to the Minister of Social Development to move from aspiration, because this is an aspiration of our National Development Plan, to action and actually implement this maternity program. Um, and we're not just saying it in you know, a theoretical way. We're also putting our own sort of investment and time behind it. We're commissioning an investment case so we can actually see from an economic point of view, does this make sense? Where is the money in the fiscus? What is it going to look like? What is it going to cost us? So do come to our website, growgreat.co.za, and read the article and sign our petition if you agree with our arguments. But from a practical point of view, I mean, there's such interesting research around, you know, we speak about stunting, we want to prevent it, right? But there's such interesting research around something things that, mit- that, that, that minimize the effects of stunting. So there's always children around us. You know, we have cousins. We might not be a parent, but we have cousins, we have nieces. And incredibly, reading is such a powerful intervention. Mm. Read to children. You know, we speak about the first thousand days, and for many children it's passed right? I mean, you know, not everybody's in the first thousand days, mm. and sometimes these things have already started to happen. But it's incredible how reading to children can really begin to make incredible brain connections that can mitigate effects. And there are some studies that show that, that, you know, some, some um, interventions that teach children, and, and actually reading and words is the infrastructure for math. Mm. So, you know, if you have a big vocabulary, you've built the sort of scaffolding in your brain to expand in numeracy. Mm. So, and it doesn't have to be expensive books. You know, pick up the Sunday Times, pick up your newspaper, make up a story, have an old magazine. Children, and it's also great for bonding and attachment. You know, when you sit with the child, sometimes people are like, I don't really know where to start with bonding and attachment. Put your child on your lap, sit and find, you know, on a couch pick up something and tell a story and get them to finish it off, get them to do it next time. These are simple things that we can all do. It seems silly. It seems too basic, but actually it's incredibly powerful. And more and more research is showing that, you know, reading and words and vocabulary really are aligned to kind of how children do later on in school, their confidence and the ability to express themselves in a positive way as adults.
0: Always lovely talking to you, very insightful. We'll do this again next week, Dr. Kopano Matamabaso, who is Executive Director at Grow Great. And this is just in line with our series, just to deal with stunting. And if you have any questions, please tweet us at SAFM at Pemelo Motene as well.